0: Hi, this is Ian Wolfe, producer, host and writer for Diffusion Science Radio. I need your support. You can support Diffusion by downloading a free Audible audiobook from audibletrial.com science. Just for getting you to try them out, Audible will pay me a small reward. Or, you could click on an Amazon link on diffusionradio.com and Amazon will kick a few percent of what you pay them my way. Please, make a donation directly. With the PayPal button on www.diffusionradio.com.
1: Diffusion, the the international science radio show.
0: We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically
1: engineered potatoes. Planetoid.
0: Planetoid.
1: I love that word.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, mind-controlled, eliminated brain art. But first up, here's the news. (laughs) Artificial IQ, not the real thing? An artificial intelligence program created by researchers at the University of Science and Technology China, in collaboration with Microsoft Beijing, has passed a verbal IQ test with a score higher than most humans under 30 in the study. It's an amazing achievement because the software appeared to understand and respond correctly to the questions posed in plain English better than many humans. But in reality, it was written specifically to answer questions on the test. The study compared the test scores of the machine with the test scores of 200 people recruited using the Amazon Mechanical Turk program, and against random guesses. Ironically, the original Mechanical Turk was meant to be a chess-playing robot with clockwork artificial intelligence in the 18th century. Alas, it was a fake, with a small man hidden inside who was brilliant at chess, who would move the hands of the robot to play chess. Amazon's Mechanical Turk is a platform for recruiting people to do jobs that are too hard for machines, where people are paid vanishingly small amounts of money. Intelligence quotient IQ tests were invented in 1904 by Alfred Binet and Theodore Simon as a way of finding out which kids would need help keeping up with the new French compulsory school system. In 1916, Lewis Terman adapted the Simon Binet IQ test to American culture and renamed it the Stanford Binet test. He widened it from language and comprehension tests to hand-eye coordination, mathematical reasoning and memory. He used William Stern's ideas to score the test as a mental age divided by your physical age multiplied by 100. The average IQ is set to be 100, but statistically adjusted so that two-thirds of people will score between 85 and 115. An IQ above 130 is gifted, below 70 is intellectually disabled. Binet believed that children's intelligence could be increased if they were given help early, while Terman believed their intelligence was inherited and unchangeable. IQ tests usually include logic questions such as patterns and sequences of images, mathematical questions such as finding patterns and sequences of numbers, and verbal reasoning questions, which are based around analogies, classifications, as well as synonyms and antonyms. Intelligence is hard to define, but like art, We know it when we see it. People who score well on IQ tests tend to have recognizably higher intelligence, but people of different cultures to the testers tend to do badly on IQ tests, regardless of their intelligence. There's cultural intelligence, creative intelligence, emotional intelligence, verbal, visual, abstract and physical intelligence, in addition to general intelligence and many other types of intelligence. The Chinese Verbal IQ test-taking program was built from a classifier, word embedder, and solver. The classifier recognized the specific type of verbal question, whether it was an analogy, classification, synonym, or antonym. The word embedder gives distributed representations of words and relations by examining the different senses of words and the relational knowledge among words and their senses contained in Longman's Dictionary and a 2014 snapshot of Wikipedia. Humans normally aren't allowed dictionaries or Wikipedia in IQ tests. The solver was based on the distributed word representations and relation representations from the word embedder. The software answered the word classification questions by encoding the reasoning done for them by humans who contributed to the dictionary and Wikipedia. These deep learning techniques aren't far away from how Google search understands search requests and finds answers. Translating from words to representations and from representations back to words The test taking software was able to perform better on the vocabulary test than most of the 200 people in the study The exceptions were people over 30 who did better than anyone younger And people with degrees People with higher degrees did better than people with lower degrees who did better than those without degrees Probably because they have larger vocabularies Beating uneducated adults under 30 is a big step up from 2013 a whole two years ago. At the time, the University of Illinois, Chicago, had ConceptNet4, an artificial intelligence program, instead use verbal reasoning to reach the score of a four-year-old child. If that child had no life experience, it lacked common sense. For example, it knew that ice forms at zero degrees Celsius, but not that ice is cold. These improvements to machines interpreting the natural languages that humans speak will likely be used to enhance Google, Siri and Cortana personal assistance software and audio surveillance software. It's life-changing for many disabled people to be able to use accurate and intelligent voice control software. It's still a long way from machine general intelligence or self-awareness. Perhaps to develop general intelligence, we'll need to put artificial intelligence software into small robot bodies and let them out to play. What could possibly go wrong? The paper has been placed on the preprint site archive.org and was titled Solving Verbal Comprehension Questions in IQ Test by Knowledge Powered Word Embedding. I'll post the IQ questions used by the Chinese researchers on diffusionradio.com so you can try them yourself. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Recently, I visited a noisy meeting of the Sydney Biohackers, where Laura Jade exhibited her artwork, Lux Mentis. Laura Jade is an illumination designer with a background in biology, curation museum studies, science communication, and a bachelor of fine arts. She's interested in the intersection of art and science. I began by asking her, what is her artwork about?
1: The work tonight is called Lux Mentis, that's Latin for light of the mind. It's a brain light installation that lights up with an EEG headset that reads your brain waves and expresses that in light on a brain sculpture.
0: You went through tonight some of the process you went through to create this. The brain sculpture, what's it actually made of?
1: The brain sculpture is made of perspex that's been laser cut and etched with neural networks. The perspex is six millimetres, it's clear, it's intersected and locked into a design that can be disassembled and assembled in a gallery setting or museum setting. The light that passes through the perspex lights up the neural networks in a way that looks like electricity, like the neurons are firing.
0: You've got a projector putting light into this, and the colours are connected to the EEG headset?
1: Exactly right. So the projector is feeding uh, information that's coming from a wireless headset. It's the Emotive Epoch BCI interface we've used, and what happens is it reads the dominant frequencies of each brain region. Uh, It transfers this to a Raspberry Pi that runs a program Sends this through to the projector, which then illuminates the brain sculpture with different coloured light. The light is three different colours. We used RGB, so red, blue, and green, to represent different brainwave frequencies. Green is represented by theta waves, which is the quiet, focused thought. Blue is calm, meditative, relaxed alpha waves. Red is beta, excited, energised, or highly frustrated and angry waves.
0: And so the BCI is the brain computer interface, and the Raspberry Pis are those little, like a box of cards sort of size, $50 computers?
1: Exactly right. Raspberry Pis are awesome. You can upload a program onto them and they'll run it very efficiently. They never break down, you know, unless you trample them. They're a very cheap computer and great for a situation like this where you want to do one specific thing.
0: And the Emotive headsets, they're commercial brainwave readers.
1: Exactly right. So Emotive is an awesome company that was developed in Sydney, but they've moved to California. You can buy their headsets from the Emotive website. They've got a new one coming out that I'm very excited to buy. It has dry sensors. You don't have to wet them with saline to be conductive. It's a very sleek, sexy design. So I'm looking forward to getting their upgraded headset. But they're research grade. You can program them to do all sorts of things. Remote control your wheelchair. They have machine learning And they're great for things that, you know, anything you can imagine, really.
0: Tell me a little bit about the process you used to design this. You started out with an MRI scan.
1: That's right. I used an MRI scan of a real human brain, which was sourced online. It's a 35 year old healthy male brain. And to create the actual brain model, we sliced up this MRI scan in a program called 123D Make, which creates a slice form uh, model that you can laser cut and slot the slices together, so it's very easily assembled. I then used Illustrator to illustrate neural networks on each slice, and these are what light up when you pass the projector light through it.
0: That's amazing. You made brains in several different sizes.
1: Yeah, that's right. So I went through a bunch of different prototypes before I spent the money on a giant brain that ended up being almost two meters by one meter in length, so it's a formidable gigantic installation. The previous designs were based on MRI scans that I sourced online. And when I collaborated with my neuroscientist Peter Simpson Young, he informed me that they were actually very severe dementia brains, unhealthy brains. They look beautiful because they've been etched away, they look like pine cones. But I didn't want to use an unhealthy brain for this particular project, I wanted a healthy brain. So the final model is, is actually a healthy brain design. And there is a, a, a real life-size model that I use, uh, which is here tonight, that you can actually explore your own brain waves on.
0: Your exhibit, is that still possible for people to go and see it?
1: It's actually finished, so the, yeah, the exhibition was last month. But there are lots of things uh, on the cards in the pipeline for the future for this project. So myself, my collaborators, Sam Gentle, who's the software designer, and Peter Simpson-Young, the neuroscientist, we're going to keep working on the signal processing of this, this particular project so we can get more emoti- emotional states and more accurate readings of different regions of the brain. We're going to keep working on that. I'm going to work on the different lighting elements as well. But other projects where the brain will be installed, for instance, will be the Australian Museum in Sydney for Science Week. They're having a neuroscience exhibition, so you can come down and have a play with it there, as well as the Powerhouse Museum for the Maker Fair, I'm going to exhibit it there too.
0: Do you have an online presence?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I have an artist website. You can find me at laurajade.com.au. And there's some YouTube videos of the brain in action, one of the interesting videos on there is a collaboration I did with composer Axel Singer. He's a beautiful uh, piano player, and we popped the uh, headset on him, set up the brain while he played a beautiful composition so we could see his brain light up while he was playing. Uh, so there's a great video. Check that one out. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook, etc. as well. So.
0: And so when people are wearing the headset and they're looking at the brain and it's showing their brain waves, are the colours changed by the fact that they're looking at them?
1: Yeah, exactly right. So it creates a biofeedback loop that is constantly evolving in union with your perception of the actual brain sculpture in front of you. If, for instance, one of the exercises that I do with people to get them interacting with the brain and starting to control their own mind, you can get a sense of control over it after a little bit of time, is to close their eyes and you'll immediately get a spike of alpha waves because you've cut off all external stimuli what that state is I try to get them to emulate that with their eyes open so the brain will glow blue so it's trying to harness that meditative calm state where the brain is blue and being able to see that blue light is then you know people get excited when they finally reach that state of alpha and so they'll get an excited brain wave which is expressed in red light which is beta. That also means they could also be frustrated if they haven't got the blue light. So it's the highly energised red light could be anger, frustration or excitement. So another interesting example is to give someone a maths problem and the brain will go completely green because they'll be highly focused and if they get happy that they've you know, got it correct, it'll go red or if they've got it wrong, it'll also go red. So it's yeah, there's an internal feedback loop that uh, is constantly at play. I'm very excited to be a part of the BioFoundry and having an awesome time here tonight discussing the brain with other beautiful artists and scientists who are collaborating together. It's a really awesome space. So I encourage everyone to look up the BioFoundry and, yeah, come and have a play with your own brain and find me wherever I am exhibiting next.
0: Laura Jade, thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you. That was Laura Jade and her colour-changing, mind-reading Perspex brain. You can see her work at the Sydney Mini Maker Fair in the Sydney Science Festival this month. You can find her online at laurajade.com.au. I'll embed video and photos of her brain on the episode page at diffusionradio.com. Sam Gentle is a software developer contributing to Laura Jade's team to build her mind-controlled, colour-changing brains, Mentis. I began by asking him, why choose Python as your hardware programming language?
2: I am a big fan of Python. I, once long ago, I, I used Python for my sort of you know paid work, but recently there's a lot of new developments in JavaScript and so on that I've been I've been doing more of that professionally. But I tell you, it feels great to come back to Python, especially in this particular domain, you know, doing doing signal processing and doing scientific stuff. Because on top of its advantages, I think Python is a very elegant, very lovely language. But it's also got just such amazing community support in terms of its scientific programming and, and math and science libraries that it's. I mean, you almost don't have to do anything it does itself you just sort of show up and you know it's already done for you
0: and you chose the raspberry pi little computer as the platform
2: yeah the uh the <laughs> if there is one thing that i am more impressed with than python it's surely the raspberry pi that thing is amazing and i think that really what gets me about it is that it's such an amazingly powerful and flexible platform for such a small amount of money i mean obviously anyone with a computer can do computer stuff you know but to be able to do computer stuff for, i mean effectively fifty dollars is about what it costs these days it's got so much it can do you know you can do networking stuff you can do display stuff you can do graphics I mean anything it's a, it's a computer anything you can do with a computer you can do with it and I mean for us what was I think the best thing about it was that it was so cost effective that we didn't have to worry about hardware problems if something had failed on the Raspberry Pi we would have just got our backup Raspberry Pi and plugged that in and if that one had failed we'd have gotten our second backup Raspberry we had three of them it cost us $150 that would have been I mean like half of what even the cheapest possible laptop we could have gotten uh, would have been so it was yeah just a, an amazing balance of that the power the flexibility and the cost really just great.
0: And you talked about how you ended up with a modular approach which sort of ended up being particularly suitable for a brain project.
2: Yes I mean honestly I think suitable for any project but in in particular I think one of the most difficult things about software you know is that is that we always want to we always want to control it you know we want to we want to conceive of this whole perfect thing this uh, this amazing architecture that we've built and we go this is perfect I've built it it's it's wonderful and then a week later someone turns around and says oh no actually the, the requirements have changed we need something different now and you're, you're in tears you're like oh god this this amazing thing that I've built is now useless and I have to go all the way back and build it. and, and this is what happens in in professional software development so often you know that the people will make these things way bigger and way more impressive than they need to be that don't actually do the job and then they have to go back and rebuild them over and over again because the the problem is that you know software uh, unfortunately doesn't exist as its own perfect unique thing you know it it has to conform to the real world and the real world is messy and and the goals change and the requirements change and whether or not you have enough funding to go with the next step changes and so on. And I mean, I think that really it's just that an artistic project like this one, more than any other kind of project, has that problem. You know, that when you're dealing with an artist, there's not even any reason for the changes. You know, I mean, and not, you know, that's that's just the nature of the thing. Like, you can't complain about that. It, it, that's art, you know, and, and you'll make this thing and it'll be like, oh, but that doesn't look right. We want it to look different. And you go, but this one is more scientific. And they're like, we don't care. It's art. it, it needs to It needs to serve its artistic function more than anything else and that can be I mean amazingly arbitrary you know and that's just the nature of things so I think for that I I needed to be able to make something very flexible you know something that would be able to respond quickly to those changes and and react on I mean like what happened in the end was we had this whole structure planned out for how the lighting was going to work with this special lighting controller and little optic fiber kind of filaments or whatever and a week before it was going to go on Laura says to me look we're not going to be able to do that. I've, I've been looking into it. I've been in touch with all these suppliers. It's not going to happen. We just can't. We can't source the hardware in time. Time for plan B. And I'm like, okay, what's plan B? <laughs> and she says, well, we're going to have to put it on a projector. And I'm like, okay, because we never talked about that ever. Like, I know, you know, I hadn't even considered what would be necessary. But it was fine because, well, because first of all, the platform itself, the, the Raspberry Pi was flexible enough. It had the capability to drive a projector, which was, you know... <laughs> A lifesaver, but you know, but also the software. I, I had I designed it in such a way that we could just add and remove these components at will and so we just removed the components that we'd started building for this really better and simpler structure that we just couldn't that we couldn't achieve and added you know much more complicated ones for all of the projection and and so on so that really that structure I think I I knew at the start that I wanted to do it that way for in a sort of future-proofing sense that I was like okay I'm gonna do it this way and hopefully that'll work better and then Sure enough, you know, a week out, it really it saved me. So yeah, I was I was happy about that.
0: In the end, to get this right sort of projections on the light, you talked about using cellular automata.
2: Yes, that that ended up being quite a funny one, really, because what happened early on we had this we had this visualization we were using for sort of a intermediate uh, debugging kind of purpose, where we built this what I called the the brain ball, and I think eventually got changed to something like the the cranial orb or the you know something much uh, much more you know legitimate sounding, but brain ball is what it will always be to me. Which was a it was a lovely looking little visualization with with all of the uh, the sort of brain activity at different locations all rendered in this lovely smooth glowing ball that you know that would sort of uh, it was quite uh, meditative almost you would kind of watch this thing and you'd watch your own brain activity it was lovely but what I learned very quickly was that what worked on a screen was totally different from what what would work on uh, projected on the sculpture itself the sculpture doesn't pick up subtlety at all it is incapable of, of uh, understanding subtlety it really needed very harsh colors it needed you know high contrast high brightness and uh, rapid changes between light and dark because when you did that you would get this sort of this sparkling effect and it looked it looked great but for this smooth this lovely bullet well, it was rubbish now it was useless so i started thinking about ways to generate that pattern you know that, that rapid sparkling between light and dark, and so essentially I needed a kind of noise, but the tricky thing is certain kinds of noise are, are more suitable than others you know the, you have this this problem where if it 's just completely random noise, you look at it and it looks meaningless you know, but if the noise has too much of a pattern to it it, it, it detracts from the rest of it. you start looking at the pattern rather than looking at the at the colors and whatever else we wanted people to pay attention to so I ended up settling on this on this cellular automata structure, which really was, I mean, almost a coincidence. Really, it was just something that I'd taken an interest in at the time. But I, oh, it's, it's so great. I mean, you really the um, the structure of cellular automata, which I have trouble saying quickly, is is it's, it's essentially these these cells, which are just little little pixels in a in a big you know grid. And, and really simple rules that dictate how those cells change the cells around them. So it's really very simple rules. In the end, I had, I had three rules. I really, it was just uh, one rule for if there's a certain number of pixels lit up around you, you should light up. If there's too many pixels lit up around you, you should go away. And if there's exactly the right number, then uh, something else happens. But, but with, just with these three rules, we ended up with this amazing complex noise pattern, which was really... It was really mesmerizing honestly when I when I finally got it out there but I tell you the the process of making it was uh, quite quite counterintuitive in that sense uh, I mentioned earlier that that feeling of wanting to control the software well this is so far down the other end because it's really it's it's at that point it's not scientific you know it's it's more like alchemy like you're just you're fiddling with stuff and it changes and you don't know you know so it was really uh, it was, I was worried for a while there because we were on a, a quite a tight deadline and the noise didn't quite look like I wanted. You know, it would, it would fade away really quickly or it would explode out into this brilliant white screen, which was, I mean, it was spectacular, but not useful. So finally, I, you know, I, I managed to tweak it to the exact right values. Oh, just a little bit more here and it wouldn't, a little bit that way. And it would, you know, kind of makes you appreciate how fragile that, that exact balance of the right uh, rules is in our universe, you know, because of course, I think that's what really stands out for me is that is how it works for us. You know, we are built of these tiny little rules that all somehow have ended up with with us being the way we are. And if any one of them was a tiny bit different, we would be a either black nothingness or a random chaotic noise, incapable of any meaning. So, yeah.
0: and you talked about the effects of staring into these patterns.
2: <laughs> yes. So the uh, so like I mentioned, you know, the when you. When you have completely random noise, it's just meaningless. And if you have noise with too much pattern, like if it's just a, a sort of a swirl or an alternating on and off or something, you just, you just, the pattern is too obvious and, and it, it distracts you. But what I ended up with was, I don't know how to describe it, is it creepy. It's like, it's sort of organic in that way. And so you start staring at it. And so at first it just looks like noise and you slowly start to see... Uh, like these sort of shifting sub-patterns in it. It's like, it's like sort of layers of sand moving on top. And, and well, I tell you, you really, you spend too much time looking into that and you start to go a bit spare. Like you really, you really do have trouble. Uh, and you start thinking like, am I, am I, you know, am I okay? Like, am I going to start hearing voices next? You know, who knows what's going to happen? I actually did have to force myself away from the screen a few times because it was just too mesmerized. It was, yeah.
0: You might summon Cthulhu.
2: Yes, that's a significant problem, I think. Anyone who is, who is interested in learning about cellular automata should be quite concerned about the possibility of otherworldly beings or insanity. Yeah, many, many concerns, but uh, with the appropriate safety measures, absolutely worth a try.
0: Well, Sam Gentle, thank you very much.
2: No problem, thank you.
0: That was Sam Gentle using Raspberry Pis programmed in Python with hypnotic cellular automata to help build Lux Mentus, the colour-changing, mind-controlled Perspex brain project that does not summon monsters from other dimensions. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, helpful suggestions and donations. To science at diffusionradio.com That's science at diffusionradio.com And please do send me an email So I know you're listening And you'd like to hear more episodes Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook And rate us on iTunes Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe Checking production was Charles Willock I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network, including two Triple H in Hornsby-Karingai, two NVR in Nambaka Valley, two X in Canberra, and three NBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for videos and links and photos to this week's show. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more Science Wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. I've been around a lot and talked with some of these research men and they
1: won't make predictions because they deal only in facts. But they're on their way to new ideas, new things that will astonish us when they are announced. For instance, one research man said recently, We have discovered how to manufacture rubber from coal, limestone, salt, and water. Out of air, water, and coal, we produce a fertilizer for which Americans formerly had to travel thousands of miles. In coal, we have found the colors of the rainbow and the perfumes of nature's sweetest flowers. Chemistry is responsible, too, for the gossamer-like threads of these new stockings. By a miracle of modern science, such commonplace things as coal, water, and air have been transformed into threads more elastic than silk, spun from filaments even finer than those of a spider's web, yet many times as strong.
0: And the chemical age is just dawning. It's a bewildering future,
1: all right.